or Kai for short. Kai was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1963 to Marie L. Pratt and Hezekiah Montgomery. He had the world in his hands for the first 10 years of his life. He went to St. Augustine Catholic School from kindergarten to eighth grade and was always taught the Bible and the Word of God. He grew up with a passion for reading anything and everything. In the past 15 years, he buried a mother and a father. He has seen the death and destruction of not only one marriage, but two. He spent 86 days in a Baltimore detention facility, or BDF. His wife abandoned him for her ex-husband, who was also married at the time. He was abandoned by his spiritual leader and his pastor to lie in jail without any spiritual guidance, even after writing them and asking them for help. He was left in, in the BDF with just one pair of underwear and socks. He hurt a child he loved dearly. He lost a new car, his apartment, and a good job. He was abandoned and alone. But let me tell you about me. And that was the introduction, or after the introduction, of Rediscovering Kai. Now, here's another chapter that got people um, interested in listening and reading, um, and it, it you know, got some controversy and some understanding and started all kinds of um, discussions going on, and that's actually in Chapter 3, and which is entitled Sexual Immorality. There, there is a reason God said that sex is meant for the marriage bed and should not be defiled. Why? Because he knew that we would not be able to handle it if it's not controlled and has boundaries. The boundary that he gave is marriage. The first married couple was Adam and Eve. They were married in God's eyes. And they were both naked, and man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And that's found in Genesis 25. I'm sorry, Genesis 2:25, the King James Version. He formed them for each other, and Eve was a helpmeet to Adam. And the Lord God said, it is not good for man, should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. Genesis 2:18. So what did society do? It took what God created to be beautiful and ran with it. That's why in the word it says that man should not fornicate or have sex outside of marriage because it's against all of God's principles. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. As a young man, I always tried to meet someone that I could go out with, have a good time, and then maybe marry well, I was in love with someone at the age of 18, but it was, but I was too slow for her. She wanted the bad boy, which I could never understand. As the years went by, I was trying to date here and there. I was always the one that wasn't picked. There I was, thinking about, you know, going, never going to experience sex, not knowing what God was trying to keep me from getting into something that I was going to regret. I once heard of an evangelist gave her testimony on how she was, before God, put on a lockdown. In her young years, 
she was sleeping with this one and that one, and she and when she would try to get away, there was always some residue left. Explained it this way: when a man sleeps with a woman, he's giving her something, and the woman is receiving from him. He's the giver, and she's the receiver. So if he had, so if he had slept with another woman and then slept with her, whatever spiritual on that other woman would be carried. Through him, and the one he was sleeping with now, and it's the same when and when reverse, whatever spiritual on the woman she would give them to the man, what happens is that we start to get soul ties to this man or woman, and we know it's wrong, but we don't want to get you know we we don't want to let them go. And even if we let them go and think we're over them, if they come around, our knees begin to buckle again because because they're there. That means you're not over them. They still have power over you. What I'm saying is when I had my first sexual experience with my first wife, I didn't know her. I got caught up in fornication thinking it was love. I got caught up in sexual immorality which was against all of God's rules. So whatever spirit she had from her past experience were being passed on to me. I didn't have any past experience because she was my first. It was the first time of what Satan thought was going to be a lifetime of misery. Yes, I enjoyed it. I would be a liar if I said I didn't. The problem was I I was enjoying it for the wrong way. And soon the feeling of fun began to change, and what I once thought was right turned out not to be right later on down the road. I thought I was in love, but in fact, I was basically in lust. Neither of my wives truly knew me. I didn't get to know them either. Why? Because each was started off the same way, fornication. And when you go against the rules of God, as Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. Nothing good can have come from it because nothing was done right. We never became friends. So, as one of my best friends said, whenever we talk about it, I was basically going through a Groundhog Day scenario, hoping to wake up to something new and not the same thing. Another problem is that when we, when sex isn't involved, you're not focused on that person or what that person is, but on how it feels to be in bed with him or her. I never got to know my first wife before we married, even though we dated for two years before the wedding. She had she had anger management problems, which I never saw until after the wedding day. I found out that we started to have arguments. She would start beating on me, and would, and I wouldn't hit her back because I saw my father beat my mother, and I didn't want to be like him, but I got tired of the fighting always started. I got tired of the fighting that always started before I went to work in the morning. One day after four years, I I did retaliate. And from that retaliation, I ended up spending time in a cell until she, her mom, and my mother came to get me. That was the worst moment of my life. I'd never been in jail, and for that, 
and to have my mom to come get me, I didn't know what to say. I was her baby, and there I was. My second wife was no different. I didn't even know her a whole year, but the sex was good. Yeah, yeah, I know, the same old, same old, and we got married. Now, get this, the divorce from my first wife finally went through about a month prior to the marrying the second wife. Yes, I know that was insane, but I did it. But again, I didn't know her. And only after marrying her did I find out all the things that I should have learned prior to marrying her. But the sex was good. We were truly compatible, and my year, my eyes were glazed over. The signs were there, and I ignored them because I was caught up in the sex and fornication. An old girlfriend who loved me dearly as a friend was trying to tell me. Her mom even tried to tell us that it was wrong, but we did it anyway. So, again, the sex and lust went out. The sexual immorality got another home run due to my ignorance and disobedience to the word of God. If I, if I would have backed up, prayed, stayed in the word, and abstained from fornicating, I'm quite sure I would have gotten another answer. Why? Because there wouldn't have been any kind of soul tied to her. That's the bond that's the hardest to break. Your souls are entwined and you yearn for each other when you're apart. For this is the will of God. Even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lust or concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God, and is found in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. When sexual immorality is invited in your life, your brain gets foggy and starts forgetting what's right and wrong. You can be the smartest man or woman around. You will fall for it all the time. Why? Because you're caught up in what the world says is okay, and you're caught up in up in your own desires, wants, likes, passions, and pleasure. Even if you're the strongest, like Samson, you would fall for Delilah. Why? Because Satan's schemes are always different, but the same. If you don't say prayed up, read up, and kept up, you'll fall for it every time. I was a college student and then a college graduate, and as, a t- and as intelligent as I was, I fell for the oldest scheme around. Why? Because I didn't stay prayed up, and Satan knew my weakness. But if we stay in the Word and pray every day, when the enemy comes with his schemes, we'll know what they are and won't fall for his plans like we used to. We have to keep our eyes on our Heavenly Father. Once he frees us from sexual immorality, and we get a new role in life, then we'll be able to practice celibacy, no problem. Why? Because we know in our heart that we want to please him, not him or her. Okay, I'm going to take a quick break for a second just to 
um, as we're perusing and going through Rediscovering Kai. Um, and that, again, was sexual immorality, the chapter four, if I'm correct, of sexual immorality. And now we're going to go, oh, I'm sorry, that was called the Internet Whore, I apologize. And now we're going to go to Chapter 6, The More Hands. And I titled this The More Hands due to the um, fact that um, many times we have issues in life and get caught up in stuff, and we try to run around to get help from people, especially our best friends, our friends, or even the church. But um, I found out that when you have a lot of hands or a lot of people in a group or trying to help somebody, you know, the more hands that get in, the more the worse the situation gets. Many times we try to fix things by going to him, her, you know, but we don't go to the right person. And when you have, more, you know, the more hands trying to stir the pot, it's almost like I came, I think, you know, I've seen uh, my brother fixing the stew, so I'll go ahead and put something in just to make it. And then someone else comes and puts something in. And then before you know it, without paying attention, see what's going on, that's not stew anymore. It's a debacle. But when I, um, the statement was made the other day, the more hands that put their hands in things, the worse it gets. It wasn't the first time I had heard it, just confirmation that it is true. When it was first discovered by my church that something was going on between I and my stepdaughter and me, the officials of the church didn't handle it correctly. I'm now in a new church, and it's fascinating to me when I reflect on the incident and then when the saints... Then when saints fall, you are to restore them privately and not make them ashamed of what happened to them all the time. The problem at the moment is that people in the church today are worse than the people in the world. They like to take things in their hands. They feel they need to help God. Or they feel that God's taking too long, so they need to pitch in. We have to get out of the habit of thinking that God needs our help. When we see someone fall, it's not our time to see how we can fix it. It's our time to pray for them and ask them, what can I do to help, if possible? They didn't do that. They started calling here and there and gossiping, and the more they gossiped, the more the story wasn't straight. The more it wasn't straight, the worse it got. As Christians, when we see someone in offense and they fall, it's our duty to pray that God will have mercy on them. They didn't have mercy on me. All the emotions aroused, and I was alone. My wife was already gone. I was home alone, and no one to talk to, and no one to pray for me. I was humiliated for what I did to a child and didn't know what to do. I did my best day by day to make it. I had no one that wanted to show me the love of Christ, to love me for me. If I wasn't part of a clique or a family or in a group, I wasn't important. That's the worst feeling feeling anyone can have. 
When you go to church, you're alone. When you're home, you're alone. When you're driving and wanting to talk to someone, you're alone. Why? Because, again, the more people talk, gossip, and not look towards God, the worse it gets. What I'm talking about is that I was in a church, but I didn't feel the love of God there. Both my parents died years ago, and my best friend got married, which was a great thing because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't run to her um, with my problems like I used to. It seemed that when my mother-in-law, the evangelist, came to the church, she was more important than I was. Somewhere down the line, it was forgotten that I had been at the church first. I got there in the summer of 2001, and I was there until all this craziness came about. But it seemed that my loyalty and dedication weren't appreciated in my time of need. Just remember, it's not always good to want to know what's going on and want to try to put your hands in to make it come out right. Too many hands will mess up the whole thing, and without God, truly being in the center of inner inner I'm sorry, in the center of it, it will be to no avail. Okay, again, we just have to be careful that when we are out there trying to fix, help, give God a hand, and I'm sure we all know if God created the world, if Jesus Christ died and rose again the third day, which we're about to celebrate Easter, none of us um need God's help. None of us need God's help because, I mean, you know, God can really take care of a problem if we do what he says, pray without ceasing, and he will give us the answers to what um, we need to do. Okay, and I'm going to back up a minute because I got my chapters confused, but that's okay because many times when you write stuff, you can't remember. You know, people think you remember everything, but you won't. And this was a crazy chapter that I wrote, but it's it's real life. And as I learned from C. Maria Wall, we like to keep it real. And this chapter is entitled The Internet Whore. I know what you're thinking. What is he talking about now? Well, here it is. In my marriage to my first wife, I thought I knew what what I was doing when it came to making love to the women I was married to. You see, we don't do it right. We met, started dating, and then started fornicating. This was my first real sexual experience with sex. I'm quite sure it wasn't all, all you know, it wasn't her, hers. So as we were having sex. I started experimenting uh, with oral sex and realizing that I enjoyed it. I wanted it more all the time. We had regular sex as well, but I totally enjoyed oral sex without a doubt. I would work all day, go to school, and then end up at her house for the evening. Her room was the, in the basement of her mom's house, so we do what a couple did, start kissing, necking, caressing, and then up having sex. I leave early in the morning so no one would know I was there unless they saw my car parked close to her house. All this time I was thinking that I was pleasing her, but deep down inside her, inside her, I wasn't. So after fornicating, I'm thinking I'm in love with her and wanting to marry her. 
my family reunion on my father's side was coming up, so I decided we'd take that long drive down South Carolina, and then I would propose to her in front of my family. We took the drive, which was extremely long and seemed even longer since I had to do all the driving myself. We finally got there, had dinner with my family, and I proposed to her on her birthday. She didn't know what was happening. The ring was in a champagne glass, and I made a toast to her. She had to really look to see it. When she realized what was going on, she started to cry. Before dinner, she was making my life a living hell because she didn't know what was going on. My mom and her mom did, and my family did, but not her. She got her engagement ring that night for her birthday. We started making wedding plans, got married a couple years later, and then started a life together. Well, whoever said that it was going to be easy from that point on was wrong. When all hell broke loose, it really breaks loose. I didn't know before I married her that when we got married that she had, and when we had a disagreement, I'd be the one getting beat up, knocked upside the head, or even pushed down the stairs. She had anger management problems I never knew about. So for the first four years of our marriage, I was abused uh, when she would get angry. But I would never tell anyone because I thought if I did, I'd look like a fool. There I was, a man, and let a woman beat on me. But I, but what kept me from hitting her back was that when I was younger, I saw my father beat my mother, and she made me promise that I would never hit a woman. As the years went by, I got her everything she wanted, a car, a house, and things to go in it and she still wasn't satisfied. And to top it off, my mother got sick with cancer, which was a blow to me. It came to the point that my mother needed to come live with us so that I could um, help make take care of her while she was going through her first bout with cancer. My wife didn't want her to come live with us because her dad had stayed with us when we were newlyweds. It was uncomfortable financially, and I honestly asked, if her brother or sister could help out as well, she took that personally. So when I needed to help my mother, she made it hard for me. Now, due to this and other stress that I wasn't pleasing her sexually, I had the stress of the job, the stress of my mom being sick with cancer, and now my wife wasn't being pleased in the bedroom. I started feeling inadequate and couldn't perform the way that I wanted to. At that time, I didn't know what was going on, but as I'm reflecting on it, this makes sense to me now. She had me get some books from Dr. Johnson at the adult bookstore on 13th and Arch and helped me learn how to please her, but it wasn't working, so I started getting really frustrated. So what did I do? I had just gotten a new computer and learned how to get on the Internet. I started chatting on AOL and Black Planet, meeting women online who were single. And I'll be honest, I lie and say I was too. I'd get get their phone numbers and call them or just chat chat all the time when I didn't have anything to do. When my wife was up in in the sewing room that I put together for her with the sewing machine that I took out a loan to get her, 
I, being the basement office, talking to other women. I learned about them, emailed them, and sent pictures, and they sent them to me. I was I was more comfortable talking to them than to the woman I was living with. Go figure. Then it happened. I started wanting to meet them in person because I was living with my wife but still lonely. And to top off that, she would tear me down mentally and physically, which is something a woman should never do or want to do to her man. By this time, my mom had gotten over the first bout with cancer, and I thought all was well, but it wasn't. In the next couple of years, I was still going to church, still playing the piano for my church, but was getting more and more engrossed in the Internet, not knowing it was getting a hold of my mind. I was telling these young ladies what was going on in my life, and they were telling me what was going on in their relationships, and their relationships began to build. Then it hit me. My mom's cancer came back, and I didn't even know it. She was trying to call and tell me, but I wasn't paying attention. I thought everything was fine, and I was trying to live my life. Since things really weren't going well with my wife and me in bed, I continued to try to meet women online. I was also meeting them at work. It wasn't anything planned, but when someone took an interest in me, she pulled me all the way in. I remember Mrs. Samuels. We were both music teachers and met during a yearly concert with all the kids. We exchanged numbers, and it was on. She wasn't happy in her marriage, and I wasn't happy in mine. So we basically had an affair here and there, and no one knew but us. I had an, on- I had an online experience with Fanny McLaughlin. We clicked immediately. She lived in California. Her husband was draining her financially because of drugs. I was dealing with my sick mother, who was now about to die, and a messed up marriage. So we talked, sent pictures, and got to know each other. I don't know if my wife ever found out, but I was really into Fanny. When my mother started getting worse, I didn't know. To this day, I think she was trying to tell me but I was too busy going through so much that I couldn't even hear her. When she died, I was distraught. I didn't know what to do. My brother didn't make it to be there when she passed. Instead, he ran back to Baltimore due to fear, so I had to take care of the arrangements for the funeral and find money to do that. The blessing was that the Lord took care of all that with the money still left for um still left for my brother and me. So I saved his half, gave my wife some money to keep her quiet for a minute, and then I did what I wanted to do with my half. And the one thing I did was send money to Fanny in California to help her with the bill and allow her to come see me in Philadelphia for a romantic rendezvous. She came. I got away from home for the weekend and took the bus to the hotel. I don't know what my wife did that weekend, but I think she got suspicious and was looking around for an answer. As always, I tried to hide the evidence of anything that might point her to what I was doing. When we got to the hotel, it was on. We had a great time, and the sex was off the hook. Fanny knew what was going on at home, and she said, it's not you. Your equipment is working fine. It's her. That was all I needed to hear. I showed her around downtown Philadelphia. We went out to eat and then went back to the hotel. 
she had a rental uh, or she had rented a car, so we had a chance to travel around Philadelphia and see the sights. The, when the weekend was over, she dropped me off close to home. We went back to the hotel, got her things, headed for the airport, and returned to California. Yes, I know it was wrong, and a part of me didn't feel good, but I was hurt and needed to find out if it was me. After that rendezvous, there was there were many more. I caught a plane to Georgia to meet a young lady at a hotel. I met one in Philly, in a Philly hotel near the airport as well. I was meeting women online like there was nothing more to life. I even drove to Baltimore to meet one who lived past Washington and had family in Philly. By this time, I was sleeping on the couch because I didn't want anything to do with my wife. She messed me up mentally and physically, and I didn't want to touch her. Yes, I became an Internet whore. I was still in the church and keeping it all hush-hush. This was the beginning of my end. So with that, I actually want to take a pause as the reading is going on, and um, I want to take a break and have um, Elder Thomas Farr come on. Um, Elder Farr, are you there? Praise the Lord, brother. Yes, I am. How are you? Excellent. I am fine. I just wanted to take a break, a praise time break, so you can actually um, give us a little prayer as we're continually the live reading or excerpt from Rediscovering Kai. And um, don't know how much you've heard after the prayer. Just get a little, you know, this is like an all for one. So we're not, you know, we're not doing anything, you know, just by script tonight. We're just, you know, going in, going out, and just talking. Is that okay with you? Yes, sir. I'm here with you, brother. Amen. All right. Go ahead, Elder. Give us that prayer. Amen. Father, we thank you today, oh God. Father, we thank you, oh God, because we are overcomers, oh God. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, oh God. We thank you, oh God, for even when we didn't know, oh God, for the things that we've been through, for the things that we've been tested with. Father, we thank you, God, for your grace and mercy through our failures, through our struggles, through our trials, through our tribulations, God. Father, today, God, we stand, oh God. We stand reconciled. We stand, we stand redeemed, oh God. Father, we ask, oh God, to this word going out today, oh God, as we share the story, oh God, that someone might hear it, oh God, and they might be encouraged, oh God, that you are the God of redemption. And that they are not alone, oh God. And that they have that what they're going through is not unique. And what they're going through, oh God, you have the answer for. Father, continue to bless us, oh God. Father, I pray, oh God, that our bloodlines, our wives, our children, oh God, be blessed and touched. And that our brothers that are listening, oh God, will be encouraged, oh God, that they will seek your face and seek your peace, oh God, as they struggle through their trials. And bless us in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. So I don't know, because um, I was actually reading, I don't know when you came on, um, Elder Far, but um, what have you heard so far, or, you know, do you have any insight? Well, yes. Uh, I heard, I heard um, that I came in about, about 10 minutes ago, I heard about the, uh, the, the affair, the Internet thing, and um, and your mother, and the sickness and struggling with that, and how it seemed like your relationship with your wife, the story was telling you she was struggling, and I'm just... Um, I, I find it very intriguing. I mean, it's it's it's, it's something that uh, you'd be surprised. A lot of men are going through, 
And there's one thing that stuck out to me that you continually said that you were still in the church and still ministering and still, you know, in the church while all this is going on. And that's, that's, I think that's some of the things that we definitely have to speak to brothers within, in, the, in the body of Christ, that they're struggling, that we have men who are in the church and they're struggling with stuff. They have that secret life that, that you know, they have, they're living two lives. And the church, for whatever reason, is not relevant or not engaging them. And that's something we, we need to look at because, again, this is what we, what we talk about, um, you know, men and then the stuff we go through. We tend to uh, keep a lot of stuff to ourselves, and then we tend to hide a lot of stuff. And that's some of the things that I, that I talk about a lot in, in the ministry when, I, when we do ministry to men, that men, yeah, it's not good for men to be alone. And when we talk about that, we talk about now men, we need to have other men in our lives to hold us accountable. And it can go from the smallest thing to the big thing. And especially, it, I, I say from experience, just being married, it's like, we definitely with married brothers when when they starting out they need to understand they're not alone and what they're getting what they're going through. If they're having any kind of thing issue with their wives that they're not alone and they have to get to the point where they have some mature men of faith in their lives that can speak into life and help them get through it. And then as the far as the husband and the leader in their home, if they see something in their wife, knowing how to pray for her and how to get and how to get her in a place where she's got some mature women that can speak into her life, be it a you know a, a minister, or the pastor's wife, whatever. Because because again, when we talk about marriage, the couple spouses they know each other, you know their weaknesses, and and to be one, we're trying because if we're one flesh, if something's wrong with my spouse, there's something wrong with me, and we need to find a cure and a solution for it. And the church is, and the church is, if, if you claim the name of Christ, the church is the first place. We should go for that healing, for that reconciliation, and and, and find a way to, to fix those things, not just let it go. What do you think, brother? Hey, I love everything you said, and I, my co-host in the show is on the line. Michelle, do you have anything to say? Um, I just, it was a couple of pieces in there. I was trying to let you get into the reading without interrupting you too much, but um, it's a couple of things that um, I was uh, thinking about. I definitely agree with um, what I want to say elder, I want to make sure I'm calling the right title for um, said, but um, I just, I was looking at the, I guess the progression of things that you were going through, and a lot of times we don't understand that um, if, you know, the word, the spirit, our conscience, which is really the spirit, doesn't doesn't help rein us in, um, we, we get further and further away from the word. And you can kind of see that in your book. You start off talking about, you know, um, what was going on like back when you were in, in college and dealing with your first wife and, you know, um, the fornication and things going on there. And then um, as you moved along, things got a little deeper and you were, you know, getting further and further out there, further and further away from the word. And, you know, we all realize it often 
when we're in the storm of things and it's a lot going on in our lives, that's when we lose all our focus um, on God and on the Word and start pulling further and further away. And the further away we pull, the less our sin seems to bother us um, and the more we can find ourselves getting into. So I I, um, have always thought that that was a really good um, point that was brought out by the book as far as how far you can get away. And I'm sure you can attest to, you know, that you got further away from the words than you definitely ever anticipated on getting and further away from what what God would have you to do um, in the end. So I I just think that that is a really good um, point that your, your book brought home. Good. Anything else, Elder? No, sir, I'm good. Okay, excellent. All right, the next chapter, and this is um, interesting, um, chapter 8. And this chapter um, is entitled The Board. And this, I know, will bring up a little controversy, but um, questions, but, you know, we'll deal with that. A few days after what I, a few days after what I had done to my stepdaughter was discovered, I was called to a board meeting at the church. They also asked my wife to attend. She sat behind me. The board was in back of her, and the chairman of the board was sitting in front of me, along with the elder of the church. He asked me to reveal my transgression to the board and explain to them in detail. My best friend, Tina, who was the pastor's daughter, was sitting behind me along with my wife, Keisha. She wanted to say something but couldn't because the chairman didn't let her. My wife also wanted to say something, but again, the chairman wouldn't let her. He was in total control and wanted me to reveal what I had done. I looked at him in shame and also like he was crazy. I was already shamed of what I what I'd done and how it was discovered, and now he wanted me to tell a bunch of nosy board members so that they would be looking at me in a whole different light. I sat there quietly for a moment, not saying a word, before I told him that I wasn't telling them anything. They didn't know me, and I truly didn't know or trust them. He thought I was about to tell them the whole story, and they could pass judgment on me. Well, he thought wrong, so I kept quiet. He wasn't pleased with that. He told me that he was going to have a suggested a pastor to me to be barred from playing if I wasn't going to tell them. I chose the latter, not to play for that church any longer. I was truly upset by now. You see, I had already been over the pastor's house the night after it happened to explain it to him. So why was I in front of a group of people to repeat the same thing all over again? That was truly ludicrous to me. I didn't want to talk to the board. I was already on tape 
now they wanted me to talk to a group of people that who I, who really didn't know me, and all they wanted was gossip. They wouldn't try to help me. They tried to send me up the river and forget me. At that moment in my life, I didn't trust anyone because I didn't have anyone I could trust. I didn't feel that I would that I was loved. I felt like I was in a circus and was the featured act. That that was one of the worst feelings in my entire life. I felt like I was put on display because I wasn't perfect and I fell. There wasn't anyone really to console me and help me to get back into the fold. I pray that no one else ever has to go through that. The problem with the way it was handled was that anyone could have been in my situation and done the same thing. I thank God today for the strength to make it through, even though the so-called powers to be didn't do their job. You see, what if I had been someone who couldn't handle the pressure of the meeting of the board and had woke up the next morning and decided to commit suicide? Then what? I would have... I would have done it after I got home from the meeting because it was too much pressure to meet with them, try to disclose what happened, and keep my sanity about the whole thing. We had to be very careful when we handle the delicate situations like this. Not everyone can handle being treated the way we think they should be treated in some situations. If we don't do it with loving, caring, and being full of mercy, we too may drop the ball and cause more damage than the damage that has already been done. Okay, Elder, any comments? <laughs> Man, that's that's uh, <laughs> that's a lot, bro. That's a lot. I mean, that I think um, from the story you're telling, for those who are listening, we need to we need to consider these things. You know, you said some some profound things there about how we handle church discipline, and I think that's um, that that's important. I mean, the church again. You know, my thing, my passion is I believe what the church is, what God created the church for and what Christ died for, and all these things are taught in Scripture. Paul discussed it. Jesus discussed it. We talked about reconciling. We talked about for our weaker brothers, for our brothers who stumble and fall, and there's a biblical way to handle it. And and some of the things that you're sharing is about, you know, when, when things are handled in the flesh. And then we're not, and then I think it comes back to, are we in true fellowship with one another? So when one falls, how do we treat and how do we restore them? You know, and, and what I'm hearing in the story here, that there wasn't that that loving correction. I, you know, I put, I've put used the example of, of how, do, how do we correct our children? Do we correct them and do we correct them to break them or do we correct them to encourage them to do better? And I think we need to bring that kind of compassion back into the church when we do these corrections. And again, you're sharing your story from that, and and all of all of the all of our stories and our testimonies should be. We should learn something from them, and those who hear them, they should definitely, you know, learn from them and look and look around them, look at how they're how they're working out their their fellowship at Cornelia with the brothers and sisters that were those they call their brother and sister, and therefore our leaders to take time out and and have a and have a process. Where you know you like you you said in the story here, 
that you not got you people you you broken people so bad that if they not emotionally or whatever they're not strong enough to handle it you you send them out to you send them to a worse fate and that's not I don't believe that's what the church should be about or is or why the church was created what do you think sir I, I I agree I do agree with you one hundred percent because as you and as I wrote and as you said everybody can't handle everything. And we never know what's going, what they're going to do. You know, we're assuming that they'll be okay, but you can't assume because every situation and, you know, situations like that, um, the past situation should be handled delicately in a way where, you know, you know, one person won't be put on, you know, on a line like a circus, you know, like a, an exhibition, you know, Again, because so if the suicide rates today are high because people can't handle everything or they just get didn't get the help. And I tell people all the time, many, things, many times that we see today, the signs were there, but we just failed to, we just chose to ignore them. When things are happening on the news, they just didn't happen. The signs were there, but we choose to ignore them or choose to, you know, try to handle it a different way instead of as soon as you see the signs, as soon as something is a per, that you that is passed on to you, that you find the best way to handle it. And I think you know, as you said in the church, in church we need to handle it with the mercy and grace of God. You know, we can't be emotional about it. We have to handle it with God's grace and mercy. And the first thing we should always do is just pray about every situation before we even. Attack, you know, before we attack it or before we take it on. And if we can't do it, and I'm sure you would agree, try to find someone in confidence that you know or a professional that will be able to help you. Yes, sir, I agree. And then, you know, and it's, it is one other thing, too, that I just want to put out there because, you know, we, we use the word fellowship so much. And we and the word the Greek word is koinonia. We have to get to a point in our churches where we actually know people and know what's going on with them, not the superficial of Sunday morning for three hours and maybe Bible study, or we might have a conference or a convocation. We have to get right. to the point in our local ministries that we actually know what people. Because even okay, you know, I want to separate. I want. I'm sorry, brother, but I just want to put this out there. We I want to separate from those people who so called were raised in church, and then those that we are evangelizing in the world. We're bringing we're going to, if we're truly evangelizing the world, we're bringing people into the church, into the body of Christ, and they're bringing the baggage of the world with them. So how are we going to treat them? How are we going to minister to them? And are we prepared to do that? You know, I, I ask anyone who's listening who, who's been in church a, a while and, and is mature in the church, if ten unsaved families came to your church. This Sunday, are you prepared? Is your infrastructure? Are you prepared to deal with the issues they're going to bring? Maybe it's food. I mean, it's easy to feed somebody and pay somebody's rent. But are we really to minister to their spirits, to their hearts, to their minds, and to their brokenness? Because that's what we if we're going to reconcile people to God, we have to deal with some of the stuff they're going through. And then for then and again, I go back to now the other group is the people who are raised in church. If you were raised in church, you know, I, I've known stories and testimonies of folk who were hurt in church. So they, that's exactly. what we have to deal with. So we have to be in a, we have to 
You know, it, it's by the it's, it's by the power of the Holy Ghost. It's the power of the Spirit within us and the Christ living in us that we have to go and have to to try to heal folk. We have to really try and heal folk, and we also have to be able to maintain folk. And to me, my thing is the passion that I have for men is we have to engage men on the level where, where they are. We're going to get past the suits and ties and the matching shoes and see what's going on with a brother, you know, and what he struggled with, how he was raised, what stuff he's going through. And it's the same thing with, with families and wives and children. Like you got to get past to the, the superficial of Sunday morning for three hours and, and thinking everything's okay. That's the, I mean, you know, uh, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I mean, oh, no. we, have to really I, start, we have to start. We have to start having a Christianity that we are relevant and being effective and changing people's lives. And we and to do and, that, we have to prepare. We have to prepare. We have to be prepared to minister to them to put salve on those wounds and, 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 and help them through. And like you know, you were saying, too, with, with, with professional help, yes, but still there has to be a spiritual foundation. Because, again, if right. you don't have a spiritual foundation, it doesn't really matter because it's the sin nature also we have to deal with. So it's a lot to it, and there's a lot of it's prayer, it's grace of God, there's wisdom, and this is what we call when we have the elders of the church and the pastors, and this is the place where they need to be. And just, you know, because we you have to deal with folk. You know, we don't want to bury folk because they committed suicide. We don't want to chastise folk so bad they leave the body of Christ and they're out there and they're out there and nobody cares, you know. I, I put I, I say this a lot on my show and, and other in other conversations and conversations I have. How many people in, have you not seen in your church in the last three months and who's and who who went out there to go find out where they are? Exactly. You know, they come for two years and they leave for three months and nobody know what happened to them. But when they come back, it's praise the Lord, oh God, we missed you. But you never called to see why they didn't, they haven't been there in three months. It's a simple. That's just, that's just the simplicity of it. Now there's other things that go on, but that's just it. If folk ain't showing up who've been showing up, how come nobody's following up with them? Do we really care and do we love them with the love of God, or are we just, you know? But I'm saying, I'm done. I'm done, brother. Okay, and it's fine. Uh, you know, I'm enjoying this. I know the show is enjoying it. But, you know, that is the number one thing. And you hit, you know, church hurt is the worst hurt in, our, in, our, in the world right now. Because as my pastor called, the church is supposed to be the hospital, you know, for sinners. When, we, when we're messed up, when things are going on, we should be able to go to the church for help regardless of what the situation is because you never know what God is going to allow to come across to you, your pastor, your elders, whomever, the first lady. You don't know what God is going to allow to come across to you. But the church is supposed to be there for support and to help, not tear down. You know, once that starts happening, then we know Satan was allowed to come sit in the pew and get in the ears of a, a few of our people. But I definitely appreciate that and we don't want people that you know go through to find out that if they go to the church, they'll wish they never been because, like you said, sometimes they've gone three months. Okay, that's an issue. Somebody should be checking up on them, you know, on anybody, even if the church mouse if he's missing, somebody should be trying to figure out okay what's going on. But um, again, I definitely appreciate that. 
And I'm going to read one more excerpt and then take a little break and then come back and have a few more. Um, but I'm definitely enjoying this um, and listening and talking to you, um, Elder, as well. Okay, this is Chapter 11, and it's called The, Gla- the Glass. I watched a movie today, and it brought something to my mind. It was a movie about someone who was committing check fraud and wasn't getting caught. When he finally got caught near the end of the movie, he got a visit from the FBI agent who caught him. The scene, this, the scene triggered a memory of the first time my wife came to see me while I was incarcerated in a Baltimore detention facility. It was a week and a half later that she finally got a chance to come see me. And when I went to the visitation room, it was all an eye-opener to me. I was on one side of the glass, and she was on the other. The only way we could communicate was through the use of of the phone system, and I was told by the other inmates that those things were bugged. So if, if you said anything important, it could be used against you in court because they were taping every conversation. So I tried not to say anything important to her because of that. She looked at me and smiled. She noticed I had got my dreads cut off, which she didn't like anyway, and said I looked good. You only get in half hour to visit each time, so we talked about my best friend and her husband helping move my things out of the apartment and putting them in storage. We talked about the option of getting uh, me out on bail or an attorney to help me with the case. We chose we chose to go with the attorney so I could have someone help me with the case when I went to court. I asked her how the kids were doing, and she told me they were fine and that she was trying to keep everything going without anyone getting suspicious. Her mom didn't know, nor did the kids know. She told me about the phone system, and she said she would put some money on it and so I could call her, and I thanked her for that. It was hard seeing my wife on the other side of the glass and not being able to touch her. We touched the glass as if our hands were meeting and feeling each other, all we could do for now. I was okay with that because at least she came to see me, and it made me made sure that I was okay. We talked a little more. I prayed with her, and then I, it was time for her to go. She told me that she will be back the next week. Just a little gesture of her coming to see me gave me some inner peace, and I was falling more and more in love with her because she was working on getting me out of there. You see, before we got into this unfortunate circumstance, we were falling in love for the first time in our relationship. She was glowing, and I was glowing, and I loved it. I remember when we went to get our pedicures together that summer, that same summer, and a young man that was working on her feet and mine saw the look in our eyes and said, new love, and and that was right. We fell in love and never wanted to be apart. She did come the next week to bring me information on about the attorney that would be contacting me. She also gave me updates what was going on in the outside world. When you're locked up in the Baltimore detention facility, you don't know what's going on in the real world because you're secluded from everything. The only entertainment was the television. But something odd started happening with her visits. They started getting further and further apart, and I couldn't figure out why. 
I was under the impression that a lot was going on and she couldn't get up like she wanted. I remember one visit when she finally got there, I was about to cry because even though I was in there doing the work of the Lord, I needed to see my wife. When she saw me, she told me that she didn't want me to cry. She wanted me to be strong. She said if I cried, she would leave, so so I didn't because I needed that visit from her. She didn't um, know. She didn't know I was um, what I was. Uh, she didn't know I was up at that point where it hadn't been the, since she hasn't been there for a while. She told me she was coming. I was always ready, sitting on one of the stairs in the facility, watching the clock. And when she didn't know, uh, when didn't sh- when she didn't show, it was a letdown. You start to hear names on the inmates being called for visitations, and you're the only one whose name isn't called. But I stayed in the words so I could keep my strength up for him. As I think about it, the glass was the start of the real separation that was about to come. I didn't know I'd be divorcing my wife down the road because of adultery. I didn't know that she was secretly having an affair with her ex-husband. That was why she got more and more, and the visits got more and more infrequent. More of her time was being devoted to him, and I was basically getting shifted out of the picture. To me, the glass was showing that sooner or later, you will no longer have any connection with your wife. You'll see her, but you will no longer be connected to her, and I hated that. I will always remember September 20, 2009. It was the last time that we truly made love before I turned myself in. She said to me, what if the Lord had a prison ministry for you? Did I ever know what she meant by that? No. All I know that the glass meant a lot of things, and that was a learning experience for me. Okay, we are going to now take a break for a few minutes. I don't want anybody to leave. Um, I'm going to um, give a few notes from our sponsors that we have and our supporters, shall I say. I apologize. Um, one of our sponsors are, is Music Instruction for All Learners, where music knows no age. If you're interested in music instruction, such as piano lessons or instrumental lessons, please contact, contact us at 443-574-5491 to set up an appointment to talk to our instructors. And please visit us on the web at www.musicinstructionfal.com. Thank you. Another supporter is the Curvy Boss Project. Curvy Boss Project was created to empower, inspire, motivate, and change the lives of full-figured women. Curvy chicks are boss chicks, too, not to mention beautiful, intelligent, and talented. Please check them out on Facebook at Curvy Boss Project and visit their website at www.curvyboss.com. And another sponsor is Oasis Tax Service. Need help finding out what your tax refund should be? Oasis Tax Service can direct you to the right amount of cash back in your pocket. Mention the the man in the mirror with Jose Hezekiah Montgomery and get a 5% discount on your preparation. Contact them at 443-621-8386. And they're located at 46 South Franklin Town Road. 
and www.baltimoretextpreparationservice.com. Again, that's www.baltimoretextservicepreparation.com. We will now have a few minutes break, and we'll come back with more excerpts of Rediscovering Kai as we're, you know, supporting Rediscovering Kai, the play. You're coming out. 
We are now back. This is Hezekiah L. Montgomery, your host of The Man in the Mirror. And um, we are tonight's show dedicated to excerpts from Rediscovering Kaya, my first novel. And as we're getting ready to produce the play by the summer of 2015, um, I did want to mention to you that we have a young lady, Ms. Naza Usher, who's going to be our casting director for the play. Dr. Ahmed Royalty, a Royalty um, play productions. Um, he's actually writing the script, which we'll have by the end of March, which is our goal to raise the $5,000. And, you know, also to go towards other things that we need to get the play produced. And also I talked to, if I get this correct, um, Zachary, a young man by the name of Zachary Lee, and let me make sure I get his name correct. Um, he is actually going to be a music supervisor writing. He will be writing the music for the play. So, again, we are definitely excited for um, rediscovering Kai the play because we're getting everything in order for his name is Zachary Lee Hines II. And he's going to be writing the original music for the play. So all of you who are listening, I hope you're having a good time. And, yes, a lot goes on in our lives, but God is still there. So we have a great team that we're, that um, the Lord has put together. I won't say that Kai put it together, but God has put it together. And now we're moving on to Chapter 13, titled, um, the Bible studies. The one thing that I did miss while in BDCF was church and Bible study. I filled out the forms to go to Bible study during the week, but it seemed that was to no avail. I also filled out the forms to go to church, and that was to no avail also. The few months I did there, I had never missed church in my whole entire life like that. Instead, the Lord had me have Bible study in my cell. The way it happened was like this. One day, as I was waiting for my wife to visit, a new inmate came over to me and asked if I was a Christian. An eye look came over my face because I wasn't doing anything but sitting on the step. Watching the clock and waiting to hear my name, So I told him, yes, and then he asked me if I was having Bible studies. I looked at him again and said, yes. I didn't know what I was going to teach, but I knew God would give me what what he wanted me to talk about. My name was called for my visit, so I went and spent time with my wife in the visiting quarters. It was hard the first time to see her on the other side of the glass and not being able to touch her while talking to her on the phone. She told me everything was going on and how the kids were doing. I wanted to cry, but she told me not to. When she saw me for the first time, I had uh, I had all my dreads cut off. She said, said, my new cut looked good. I told her that when I had a chance to get a cut, I said, cut them off. They thought I was crazy, but I said it's only here, and I knew it would be too much to try to maintain while in there. Also, I knew that it was time. God told me that he was preparing me to do his will, not my own. I told my wife 
um, what she said before I went in was true. She told me that she told me that when we found out I had to go in, I might have a prison experience. And I said it had begun. The Lord was having me do Bible studies with inmates practically every night. When my visit was over, I prayed with her, told her I loved her, and then she left. The studies began with such a small group, and then they began to grow as more inmates kept coming in. Every time a new inmate would come in, the other inmates would tell him about me, and he would come out and ask if I was having Bible study. The first Bible study I had, I spoke on Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter. I read I read it several times, took notes, and prayed, and began preaching to the sheep that the um, Lord gave me to teach. A few of them gave their lives to Christ. As I prayed for them, many started getting bailed out one by one. I just couldn't understand it. I wanted to get out, but as everybody seemed to be released, I was still left in there. And here is one of my favorite chapters, um, chapter 14. And um, you'll know by the time I get finished this chapter um, what I mean by one of my favorite chapters. During my time in BDF, the Lord gave me a young man to disciple. Why? I didn't know. And to this day, I still don't know. I named him Timothy. You see, he told me he was in for attempted robbery, and that broke my heart. Timothy was one of the great bunch of our black youth that get caught up in the things that the outside world makes glamorous, and then they get sent to jail when they're caught, caught and have to do adult time. When I saw it, I didn't like it, but Timothy became special to me. He started coming to the Bible studies I held and was always asking questions. He started reading his word, and at one point I explained fasting to him and he was very receptive to it. I told him that I learned fasting from my church and that we do the Daniel fast at the beginning of every new year to start the year off right with God. Timothy took that and ran with it. He would read, fast, and pray. We pray together, and he always was willing to learn more. There were even times he'd be fasting for what was going on in his life and the things he was asking God to help him with. He would bring he would bring me his food, telling me that he was fasting and asking me if I wanted it. I never had anything to do with that. I never had anyone do that for me, and I did take it and kept him in prayer. I will tell you this. I saw this six-foot-four-inch teenager grow into a fine Christian young man right before my eyes in less than the 86 days that I was there. He grew so much spiritually that he was ready and willing to accept any sentence the judge gave him. I was amazed because I had never knew that the Lord would use me in such a way. The day came that I wasn't ready for or even expecting, but it came. He had heard some things through the grapevine, and as they say about my past and what I was charged with. So he came to me and wanted to have a meeting in my cell privately. He came to me man to man and asked me to be honest with him and said my answer would not change the way he felt about me. I said, okay, ask away. He wanted to know what was I in for. I told him. He looked at me. 
thanked me for being honest with him and told me that it would not change our relationship. Deep down inside, I thought that made our relationship stronger. You see, he needed to see a man of God be honest about his mistakes in life and not try to hide them. When it, when it was time for him to go to court, he would always get together. We would always get together and pray. There were times we'd have a prayer for everyone that was in our tear. There were also times we would have a big circle prayer at the end of the night before we all went to sleep. I found out that men do turn to God when they're locked up. You have time to do soul searching. You have time to do get close to God. You have time to share your experiences. So my little Timothy was always ready to read, pray, ask questions, and meditate on the word. He was ready to accept whatever the Lord allowed to come his way. He even told his mom about me. She was worried, but he told her not to because God was taking care of him. And just think, he was the only person I told during the 86 days days, um, what I was there for, and God used him to show me that there were people you can trust. But first he had to see my heart in action and see God's light shining in me. Thank you, Timothy. God used you to save me. And uh, one of the special chapters that I will read, and they came in, I just noticed them, I noticed they came in order. Chapter 15, Two Brothers. Um, in the beginning of the year 2009, I heard from my brother. He told me he'd been through a lot. He lost his job and fell into a deep depression. He said he had been there for over 23 years, and they gave him the pink slip, a good severance pay, and let him go. He had. He said that they let him go. He went home and stayed in the bed for about a week without getting out. He told me that he had messed and urinated on himself and lay in the bed for about a week as well. Then his best friend came in, got him, cleaned him up, and started helping him get his life back in order. That's a real friend, someone who won't judge you but will be there to support you. He told me that he had used his severance pay to pay his rent for a year and had some time to chill while he um, looked for a job, and that was a good idea. Meanwhile, at the end of 2009 was when the storm happened in my life. That was when my life started falling apart. After I thought that a new love had developed between my wife and me, it was then that the law had a warrant out for my arrest for sexual abuse of a minor. So instead of them coming to find me, I got on the phone on September 17, 2009, and told them, that I would turn myself in. I was in B- BDF for 86 days, not knowing my brother was trying to find me. My numbers changed. My wife gave my phone to her daughter, and my life was slowly falling apart. It was as if I was about to be erased. Have you ever had that feeling that life was trying to erase you? I did when all this was happening to me, and I had no one to help me, no one to visit me, and no one to support me. My brother and I were both going through bad times, and we didn't even know it. Brothers and sisters should never go through storms in their lives with neither of them knowing about it. But the problem that my brother and I were was we were never close. He left Philadelphia when I was 
a little 13-year-old kid just trying to make it through life. He left and moved to Baltimore. He never said goodbye, didn't call much, didn't write much, but was gone. It was as if he had abandoned me and went about his life and um, in his world. My mother was all, my mother had always communicated with him, but I didn't. The funny thing is that we grew up close. We had fun. My older cousin Tiffany was always around as well. They, along with my mother and my grandmother, were my family. But somewhere down the road, Satan didn't like what was going on in my life, and I think he peeked into my future and decided he was going to upset my fruit basket and leave Kai in the world all by himself. You see, family is important. If your family is dispersed, you're left alone, living life alone, trying every day to survive. That was me. At the age of 10, my life was turned upside down, and I was left to grow up to become either the man that Satan wanted me to be or the man that God wanted me to be. That was my life struggle for the past 23 years. You see, abandonment had always been an issue with me. No one in my life has ever had staying power. People have people have come and people have gone, family included. Like I said, I had a family of my own until the age of 10, and then life struggles hit the family, and I had to go live with my aunt and her family. I went from living with just a few people in the household to living with a large family conditions where I had to basically share everything because life was much different. What I'm basically saying is that my brother and I hadn't really talked to each other like brothers for over 35 years or so. Life was funny. Life has this funny way of sneaking up on you and disappointing you. He left. I had no brother. My mother and father were alcoholics, and I was left to try to live my life and make it. I had no guidance from a brother or a father. My father was married to my stepmother, and my um, brother and sisters on my father's side had him. I had a father, but they had a daddy. I never knew what a daddy was because he had more children than he could afford. He had my he and my brother never saw eye to eye, and somewhere deep down inside, I knew my brother had a hatred for my father because of how he used to abuse my mother. Yes, I've actually seen him um, beat her and slap her around and drag her by her hair when they were drunk and fighting. This is one of the main reasons I've never been drunk, because I saw what it did to people What it did to people I love. For the first time in my life, as I write this, I'm crying about it because being a grown man now, I understand what was going on. Alcohol was one of the things that destroyed my family and took my mother as well as my father away from me. But getting back to the two brothers, you see, after I got out of BDF, I did start looking for my brother, but I couldn't find him. I looked on the Internet, but it was to Noah Vell. I looked on Facebook, but he's not very computer literate. So that was a no-go. I tried to search for family members that way that may have known where he was, but I lost contact with my Baltimore family as well. I got lost in my mess and couldn't find anyone. After my past marriage went belly up, I was alone again, wanting to find my brother and praying to God he wasn't dead. 
after everything I've been through, that was one thing I knew I couldn't be able to handle. I lost my mother and my father, who I basically never had a relationship with. To lose my brother would have been devastating. Once again, God proved that he was in my life and did a miracle. After three years of sickness, imprisonment, probation, and a divorce, my brother found me. The day after my mother's 72nd um, birthday on July 19, 2012, I received an email from my brother's best friend telling me that he had been looking for me, and he didn't know that I was looking for him. The ironic thing is that I was just Googling him again that morning at work, but God being God, and his and his thing and made and um, did his thing and made it all come together. I thank God for that miracle because it was only him in his right time brought us back together as brothers. He knows that my brother needs me and I need him. We may not we may not be on the same page right now. We may not go to church together. We may may not worship together. But he's my brother and I love him dearly. And I won't let him go. Okay, we are actually winding down right now with only a few minutes left um, of this of tonight's excerpts from Rediscovering Kai, um, as we're supporting Rediscovering Kai, the play. Um, so basically what I'm going to do is, you know, start to get everything together and give you some basic information, you know, and I hope those who have been listening enjoy and those who will um, those who will actually bring it back again on uh, on demand will actually listen as well. Uh, I'd like to thank all of you who have been listening this evening. This is my first reading of my book, and it's been a blessing. Just for those who are listening, for um, Elder Far coming on and supporting, and all those who have been supporting so far with this effort as we're doing the fundraising, um, please go to the, my website, www.hezekiahmontgomery.com, and sign the guest book. And as you know, we're doing the fundraiser for Rediscovering Kai the Play. Check, um, check on my website and hit the GoFundMe link, and it'll take you to our backer page. Please support the play, which will be out by the summer or the end of the summer of 2015. And as I said earlier, our goal is to raise $5,000. We're almost at, like, you know, 5% of our goal, and the money is still coming in. But again, I'd like to thank all of you who were listening tonight, all of you that have support all of you who have been supporting the show because you are the best. And I thank God for everyone that has been helping out. And again, I'm so excited. I'm definitely excited because the play is, you know, just something I've been looking forward to for the past couple of years. And to know that it's about to happen is, you know, like a dream come true as they say, but as they say, um, this is his, I'd like to thank Michelle for coming on, supporting, and uh, giving her comments and being in the background, making sure everything is going right. And, um, again, this is Hezekiah L. Montgomery signing off, and I will see you at 
the mirror. I don't know what you're going through, but I want you to know tonight you got faith. In your trial, in your test, in your hard times. 